Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to episode 28 of the Rex Chapman Show with super cool, super awesome Josh Hopkins. Josh is not with us today. Bit of a family issue. He'll be back soon. Uh, Episode 28. Let's see. uh, Marshall Falk is a number 28 from way back in the day. I don't know many 28s. Um, Tony Delk from war that I believe he wore 28 with the Celtics once. Um, sounds about right. Um, we have a really good guest today that I'm excited about. Get into it in a minute. It's our, however, it's our third dookie. And I don't know that I can stomach another dookie, but I'm going to try. Um, talk about the NBA for a minute. The Bulls are fun. They're like the most fun team in the league to watch right now for me. Uh, they all can pass. They all can shoot. They get up and down the floor. Alex Caruso balling. Lonzo Ball balling. Um, my goodness, they're fun to watch. And that's that's been cool. It's been fun to see the Wizards on top of things. What? The Wizards? The Bullets slash Wizards? My Bullets? Uh, fun to see them. Uh, you know, they gave up a lot. Uh, or they gave up Russ to get back a bunch of players. And those bunch of players are playing their asses off. The Warriors, let's go Dubs, right? We missed the Warriors. And doing all this without Clay. I'm sure when Clay comes back, they'll go through some growing pains um, while he's coming back into rhythm. But my goodness, Jordan Poole playing his ass off. Stephen Curry, Steph's the MVP, right? Yeah, he's the MVP. Um, all right, well, let's get to it. Let's get to episode 28. And today we've had we've had Jeff Capel on Aduki. We've had JJ Reddick on also Aduki. Today we have Seth Davis. Seth Davis, my friend Seth Davis from CBS Sports, to join us for episode 28. Let's get to it. Seth Lewis Davis, CBS college basketball analyst, reporter, senior college hoops writer for The Athletic, author of Wooden, A Coach's Life, Getting to Us, and When March Went Mad. Welcome, Seth. Thanks for joining me, buddy. It's all—it's like I talk to you every day. I know. What's up, Rexy Poo? This is like, <laughs> is this going to be your revenge on me for like all those years of posting you up with questions? Like now you get to turn the tables on me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we did see one another last week. It was good seeing you, bud, in uh, New York for the for the ball game. What ball game are we talking about, by the We're way? We're talking about we get a result of that uh-huh. game. I, we got I don't a- follow college basketball that closely. So. Yeah, I know you don't. I know you don't. We got a re- we got a result. You guys beat us, Duke, Kentucky, in the Garden. Uh, what a great atmosphere! Oh man, right. Oh, it was great. And then, you know, I was in, I was in Pauley Pavilion on Friday for UCLA Villanova. That was amazing. It was, it was a great game and a great environment. And, you know, I'm not sure other sports or people who 
follow and cover other sports, appreciate the PTSD that college basketball went through last season because college basketball is the only sport, major sport that got canceled. Right. right. The NBA, they finished out their playoffs in the bubble. The uh, NHL, they got their Stanley Cup. Baseball started late. They got their World Series. The 2020 tournament was canceled like two days before Selection Sunday and um, never, never to return. So when the season started last year, aside from not having fans in there, which was rough enough, it was like everybody was in this rickety old house looking at the roof thinking, when is this thing going to cave in? You know, when are they going to cancel the season? Disruptions and postponements. So now the season has started and fans are in and we seem to be in a pretty good place. We're not necessarily worried about games getting canceled. I don't want to jinx anything. Yeah, but, uh, but it's good. It's really, it, it just, it refreshes. I'm always grateful, Rex. You know that I have a, a spirit of gratitude about me. And I think a lot of people around the sport feel that, um, especially acutely right now. No question. I, I mean, just being in that building in New York uh, the other night, I was, I was a little. I've been to a lot of Kentucky games, a lot of uh, Kentucky Duke games, and I've been to some in the Garden. You guys definitely had us outnumbered fan wise, did you not? Um, yes, of course. In my role as a journalist, I, I, you know, I'm not a you guys guy, but uh, no. But, <laughs> but did, did you feel that? Did you um, say? I don't know that I felt that. No, okay. I, mean, I think maybe you're just used to Kentucky having the most fans no matter where they play. That's why I love. Well, Kentucky. that's what that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. No, Duke. Duke is very popular. No, Duke yeah. is actually a small school. When I went I graduated yeah. in 1992, a million years ago, the undergrad enrollment was like six thousand, which I came from a pretty small private school. I thought that was big. But now that like yeah. this process with my son applying to schools, I realized how small that is. So it's not like a Kentucky, Ohio State. North Carolina, we had this huge alumni base. Yeah, um, but, but it's pretty. Actually, have, have a, a pretty nice fans. base in New York, right? Uh, a lot of, I would say a lot of fans, people who are just Duke fans. Fans. Okay. I mean, ironically is inside the state of North Carolina, where Duke is the least popular. Which is um, okay. my mind went straight to you got to be vaccinated to be in the garden. So therefore, fewer Kentucky fans. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> Duke's pretty popular in the garden. <laughs> Garden, so. um so you, you you have to see that game oh by the way i i i gotta say you know i was talking to the guys the crew before you came on and every now and then you see a basketball player that really excites you and, and you know seeing as many players as we're fortunate enough to see you know on not only watching on television but get to interview and watch in person uh I, I get really excited when there's something different. And the kid Boncaro for Duke, that guy, he's unique. He's so big. Like, you know, we uh, Kentucky had the kid Oscar Shibway, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, long, you know, uh, had a great game against Duke. But Boncaro is a good two and a half inches taller than him. I mean, he's sick. He's a good 6'10", and just a mountain of a guy. His skill level is unbelievable, the fact that he can handle the ball. Um, you know, I talked to uh, a couple of guys, a couple of scouts there that are still Duke. They're Dukies. And they were telling me, you know, they saw him this summer, weren't so sure. <laughs> they're, they're believers now. Uh, and Keel's obviously an amazing player. But the bodies on those two young men to be 18-year-olds, are they as, as good as advertised? 
Yeah, well, Bancaro, certainly. Um, you know, I didn't really get to see them much in, in high school, not as much on, on the recruiting uh, trail as, as I used to be. So I'm always a little bit skeptical. Yeah. Uh, now, I had seen Zion. So, but I was also a little skeptical about Zion just because, like, I sort of feel like at a certain level, you can overpower your opponents physically. And that happens a lot with guys in high school, especially the bigger players. But then when you move up a level, now you have to really be able to play. And as we know that Zion was really able to play. And, and that's what I see in, in Boncaro. I, I think it's very hard to think of a proper player analogy um, for him. I mean, a Derek Coleman comes to mind, I think, physically. Um, but Derek never had that ball skill, certainly um, as a freshman. He actually reminded me in the Duke family a lot of Grant Hill. Um, the difference being, first of all, Grant as a freshman, and I was a junior when, when Grant was a freshman, um, Grant did not have that um, jump shooting ability, but right. even more importantly, he didn't have the mentality. I mean, yeah. Grant came in like everybody else, petrified of Leitner, deferential to the older guys. It wasn't until Grant Hill was a senior at Duke that he would, would legitimately walk onto the court and feel like I'm the baddest dude in this gym. So the fact that Paulo has that already um was just super impressive and and they're gonna ride them they're not they're not a real deep team number one and number two i'm uh, concerned about their three-point shooting i don't think i think you've got to be a really good three-point shooting team to succeed in college basketball otherwise it's it's like playing five on four so some question marks there but you could make the case that he's the best player i know drew timmy had a, had a great game obviously against texas but like if you had to win a game tomorrow and you, and you could only pick one of those two guys as your first guy who would you take Oh man, I well, I I Boncaro, but I, you can just envision him. You can put him in a game right now, in an NBA game right now. That that's the thing about the NBA game is it's just so much more physical, and the guys are bigger and stronger. And most guys come in, especially as nineteen-year-olds, and have to figure it out for a while physically. When you can go in and already compete physically, and he can, Keels can. I mean, those are grown men at eighteen. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I want to kind of go out West though, with you, um, you saw that game at Poly Pavilion and I've only been there maybe three or four times in my life. And I've never been there, uh, when UCLA was really good and like, cause I, I know what it was like, or I think I know what it was like when they were so good back in the day. And I remember they won a title. You know, it's been it's been a while back now, but it's like the passion is back. The the and they hired Mick Cronin, which Mick's a sensey guy. And I know Mick from and even when they hired him, I was like, "Ooh, I don't know if Mick will work there. They love him, don't they? Well, they love him. They love him when he wins. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny how it's funny how that works. I mean, Ben Howland went to three straight final four right right they liked him um and then he wasn't doing so well you know they fired ben howland after he won the pac-12 regular season title i guess it was pac-10 at that point so it's a little bit of a weird dynamic with ucla fans to be honest obviously it's a subject i'm deeply familiar with having researched wooden book and now i've been living out at los angeles for almost nine years i want to say eight years um, I haven't been to a ton of games in Pauly. Normally when I go up there, it's for practices and interviews and, and, and whatnot, but I've been to enough and been around the fans enough where they have really high expectations. As everybody knows, they only hang the banners yeah. championships. There's no final four banners. There's no conference title banners. It's only national championship banners. And the reality is 
there's a lot to do in LA. It's great weather. The traffic is really tough and they're in like ground zero for traffic where, where Westwood is. So they don't get like great crowds at a lot of their games and they don't get energetic crowds. That's what I was referencing about Kentucky fans. You know, people give them a lot of grief because they're so nutso, but you could put a Kentucky game in in Siberia and you'd have 10,000 people there wearing blue and and they do their part. Right. Uh, UCLA basketball fans are a little bit more fickle than that, but I will say that that final four run last year, the fact that it came on a team that nobody expected it, they had been in the first four. I mean, they were the last team called literally uh, on the selection show for them to go to the final. I think it's the first time they've been to a final four as that kind of an underdog. And I do think that people are really excited about that. And the fact that they're bringing everybody back and, you know, Mick is bringing that Cincinnati Bearcat mentality to a group that has a lot of a lot more talent than he ever coached yeah. at Cincinnati. And it's, it's, he's recruiting great. People want to play for him. He's building a culture. He's able to recruit a caliber student athlete coming from really strong families um, who come back to, you know, he, he didn't have anybody in the transfer portal. So he may have too many players and he knows what to do with. And that's a good problem to have. So yeah, it's, it was, it was just really cool to see Paulie jumping like that. And then the game even out delivered, Uh, all the hype, which was the best part. The Rex Chapman Show, powered by Basketball News, is sponsored by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the easy way to play daily fantasy. It's daily fantasy simplified. It's just you versus the projected numbers. You can pick from two up to five players and an over-under on their projected stats for a single game and win up to 10 times on any entry. Prize Picks is safe and offers fast withdrawals. Prize Picks allows mixed sports entries, offering every sport you can think of, NBA, college basketball, the NFL, soccer, MMA, and more. Your Prize Picks entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. You can take the over on LeBron's points combined with the over on Patrick Mahomes' passing yards if you want. You can receive a match on your deposits up to $100 using our exclusive promo code NEWS. That's promo code NEWS for an instant 100% deposit match on up to $100. Prize Picks has an award-winning, easy-to-use mobile app available in the App Store and Google Play. You, you did a, a, a piece recently on Johnny Juzang, and um, I, I was fortunate to to interview him when he was here at Kentucky uh, as a player his freshman year. Didn't play a lot, uh, didn't have a lot of success, transferred. Uh, talk to me about your, your conversation and your interview with Johnny and his family. I know they're a fascinating crew. Yeah, they're, they're a fascinating crew. And I'm always interested in, you know, having done this with you several times, deconstructing people, breaking them down into little pieces, and then putting it all back together and seeing how all the pieces fit. Uh, and, you know, you have a father who grew up in Louisiana um, with a, uh, a Creole dad and a, and a black mom and some Native American ancestry is a grandmother who is Native American, marries a woman from Vietnam who has some Chinese and French in her blood, um, grew up in Vietnam with Vietnamese parents. Um, and in that great mix, you have unbelievable family. Uh, Besides, we see what Johnny's doing is, you know, what arguably a first team All-American right now, might be the second best player on his own team as his plan. But um, his older brother, Christian, played for Harvard, graduated from Harvard and is now doing really cool things. And then they have a a younger sister, 
uh, Lauren is a freshman at Syracuse who's already making music and singing and has songs up on Spotify. And she's like the star of the bunch. So I kept asking the parents, like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, I love my boys, but I mean, that, that's pretty impressive. So, you know, Johnny Juzang didn't just plop in a poly pavilion and start playing the way that he played. And you mentioned that Kentucky experience. And that's really interesting because I think to me, on the one hand, it's, it's regrettable because, as you know, he reclassified as a high school senior. He, he was already one year older, so he reclassified back into his age group, unlike, say, Amani Bates, who's not going to turn 18 till January. Um, and he went to Kentucky and didn't play much and maybe kind of played, was asked to play in a way as more of a catch and shoot guy. But I mean, Calipari had Tyrese Maxey, right? I mean, what you're not playing behind, you know, right. Schmendricks here. So it, to me, it's regrettable in that he didn't get to finish out his senior year. He didn't have a prom. He didn't get to have a real graduation from high school. I think some, a lot of times kids are in a rush, but it, it was it was something that Johnny wanted to do. His parents weren't crazy about it, but they were able to give him that space to make his own decision, which means when it didn't go as well as expected, he had to own that and not look at his dad and say, well, you made me do this. Right. And so right. when I asked him about it, he said, hey, it was a great experience. It was adversity. Like this kid is old for his age and it's with you. wisdom and perspective for him to get. Now he came back and he transferred back home. Kentucky got a lot more settled and I think COVID, you know, kind of messed everything for everybody. And he's obviously thriving now, but it's not like he looks back on that and says it was a mistake just because just because he didn't get a lot of minutes. He appreciates the experience and the going through the adversity and the competition that he got. And that's why he's going to be successful, whatever he wants to do in the long run, because he sees that bigger picture. I, I'm, that's exactly the experience or almost exactly the experience I had with him interviewing him. I, I was interviewing each each young man, you know, 30 minutes at a time. They just came in throughout the day for the preseason, you know, uh, kind of a video thing for UK basketball. And uh, I, Johnny came in uh, barefoot, uh, L.A. kid, everybody else, you know, in their sweats and stuff. He came in barefoot. And I, one of the questions I was asking them, each one was, you know, if you couldn't play basketball, if there were no sports, what would you do? What would you be? You know, what would what do you think you would do? And, you know, I, if somebody would have asked me that, I'd have been like, I don't know, is putt putt a sport, um, you know, <laughs> uh, but he's the only one that came right back with an answer. He said, uh, I'd be a Navy, Navy seal. And yeah. I, I was like, he'd given it thought, you know, you mentioned his brother played at Harvard. What a unique, what a unique family. Well done to his, his folks and, and relatives. Right. Yeah, it was cool. And I actually saw, I saw them. I had met the dad. We had lunch when I interviewed him for the story, but all the other uh, interviews were over the phone. And then they were all there at the game on Friday. So I got to, in fact, I texted his dad because Johnny was like two for 10 in the first half. He was awful. <laughs> so I texted his dad at halftime. I said, the good news is he cannot play any worse. <laughs> and you just knew, and you, yeah. were this kind of, you were this kind of player, you know, a guy is too good to be that bad for that long. That it's two only, for 10, you only would, a matter of time. Two for 10. You, I might be on fire at two for 10. I don't even know yet. He had that, te that Ted Lasso goldfish, man. He just came out. And right. He actually hit a couple of buckets at the end of the half and you knew he was going to go in with some confidence. So he's, um, a, he's a nice was, player. I, yeah. You know, I, um, you brought up John Wooden 
And um, you talked about deconstructing people and, you know, for, for your writing and, and whatnot. How daunting was that uh, with John Wooden? I mean, there's nobody bigger in our sport and maybe in sports. Um, but how daunting was that once, once he agreed to it? And how did that come about? Well, interestingly enough, I, I, I wouldn't say that he agreed to it. So I, okay. had, I had interviewed him, and this is the dance that you, you play, um, uh, that you do when you're writing books like this. Um, I had interviewed him on three occasions over the course, I want to say, of, of seven, eight years. And he was very accessible. So when I, when I lived in Los Angeles the first time, this is back in 2001, when I got married, we lived here for two years, moved back east for 10, and then came back. And uh, Ben Howland had just gotten hired at UCLA. And so I knew that John Wooden had breakfast at the same place every morning. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, when you come to UCLA and you're the coach, obviously you have the specter and the pressure of John Wooden. You get the John Wooden legacy that you're ne- you know you're never going to live up to. But you also get the actual John Wooden, who at the time was like 91, maybe 92. And you can talk to him and ask him questions and befriend him and be and soak up that experience. So that was what I wanted to capture. So I arranged to have breakfast at the diner with Coach Wooden and Coach Howland. Met them there thinking that was all. And I'm just going to write a column based on the conversation. And then when the breakfast was over, Coach said, well, you guys want to come back to my place and we'll chat some more. And I said, wow, that's great. So Ben knew, and it was right around the corner. Ben knew how to, but I didn't know how to go back there. So Coach Wooden um, rode in my car. So I'm petrified. I'm like, if I do something wrong here, the world's going to hate me, right? I'm like, he was great. And we sat in his den for a while. And then Ben had to go. And I stayed for another couple hours while Coach Wooden read poetry. He loved company. Um, he, his mind, it really kept him alive for a long time and mentally sharp for a long time. So I did that a couple of more times where I, I met with him. And I just got to a point where I knew that there was a book there. Like people would say, um, you know, there've been so many books about John Wooden, um, you know, what's going to make yours different. And I just, I just knew that there was a third dimension there. Everybody painted him as this two dimensional figure, never had a bad day, never got criticized, never had any flaws, never did anything wrong. Not that I wanted to like take him down. I just wanted to humanize him. So by the time I, I uh, got the contract to write the book. He was uh, 99, I, I want to say. Um, and so he passed uh, just as I was really starting to work in earnest. And then, you know, frankly, Rex, regrettably, his his two kids, Nan and Jim, and Nan just passed away, didn't want to cooperate and didn't want to have me interview. And I knew both of them pretty well. Um, and I'm not sure why to this day, but uh, to their great credit, they made no effort to shut me off from anybody else. And they could have made it very difficult. And anytime I would reach out to somebody, if they reached out to Nan, they would say, you do what you want. We're not saying talk. We're not saying don't talk. So um, it was very daunting, uh, not least because the man lived to be almost 100. <laughs> so the more research I did and the more I typed, uh, the, the more I, I had to go. And there's kind of a metaphor for writing books and really for life, which is that, you know, writing a book is is like driving at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but if you keep going, you'll eventually get there. And it took me you know, a good four years to, to get it done. And um, like I said, I wanted to be you know, tough on them, but fair and gentle and loving and understanding. And uh, you know, I, ju- I just never thought that writing about someone's flaws makes it negative. Well, why are you writing a negative? Well, 
I think trying to make a guy live up to this vision of sainthood is unfair to him. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Actually, I, I, um, I wrote a column recently for The Athletic about some of the circumstances about Wood's retirement and actually went back into the book and, and read a big chunk of it, which I hadn't done in a long time. I tend not to go back and read just because I got better things to do. But I have to say, I read this and I read the book and I thought it was pretty good. So it, it, was, it was just an unbelievable experience and, and very honored to be able to know him a little bit and tell his story in full. I'm very grateful you did it. Uh, anything stand out uh, from that, that experience? Any story, any, anything stand out to you that maybe didn't make the book? I don't know. Well, uh, it, it was definitely in the book, but, um, you know, it was interesting. And I, again, I just published a story last week. It's always interesting to take this, like John Wooden, besides the interviews that I got from him, gave me a great gift and that he was very available and did tons of interviews. So it wasn't hard for me to get a lot of his words right. um, that he, especially over the last 30 years of his life after he retired. And it's always interesting to hear the stories that he told when he was 90 and then go back to those actual times and yeah. figure out what, what really happened. And, you know, wow. memory is a very, very tricky thing. And um, there are a lot of studies about memory and, you know, we can say things that aren't true and 100% say, well, you're a liar and you're a deceiver. No, 100% believe in your heart. This is what happened, but the memory just wasn't there. So, you know, there were a couple of things and I, I again, wrote this for last week because the season started and we had these retirements of Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams. One of the most interesting things that I discovered was, you know, what John Wooden always told the story about how he decided that it was time to quit. And he always told the story, 1975, Final Four, they win in overtime, very emotional game against Louisville and your guy, Denny Crum, who was a former UCLA player and longtime assistant under John Wooden, and everyone assumed was going to be the next coach. And John Wooden tells a story that he was so drained from that game that as he's walking off the court, he didn't feel like I want to talk to the press. And it was the first time he had felt like that. And if I feel like this, it must be time to get out. And bang, spur of the wow. moment, he decides to retire and he tells his players and he tells the press and his wife is shocked. His assistants are shocked. His AB spends half the night. Well, come to find out that's complete BS. <laughs> uh, total BS. He decided he almost retired the year before being being on top like that took a lot out of him and, and 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 he had a heart attack and his wife didn't like it and all the pressure was never enough so at the beginning of the season he told his boss jd morgan this is my last year wow uh, they wanted to give the job to gary cunningham gary cunningham a couple months later told jd morgan uh i don't want the job um and so J.D. Morgan didn't want to hire Denny Crum. He plucks Gene Bartow, who nobody had thought about. <laughs> Gene Bartow flew, actually flew to L.A. in February to meet with J.D. Morgan under the cloak of night um, and then was sort of close to, to, to accepting it. And Gene Bartow, God rest his soul, confided this to his good friend, George Raveling, who was the head coach at Washington State. And George Raveling, being a man of letters, also had a column that he wrote for the Seattle Post Intelligencer. So Raveling got the scoop. Before the tournament started, he said, John, this is going to be John Wood. It's already, he never mentioned Bartow. 
and never gave up his source until he gave it up to me many years later. And John so, Raveling broke the story. George, George Raveling. Broke George Raveling. Are you serious? Broke the story. Yeah, he would be <laughs> Twitter here. And he was the coach in Wooden's conference. So J.D. Morgan called up Raveling. So, you know, Raveling tells me the story. And Bob Boyd told me about how Wooden told him that I'm going to retire. And actually, Ted Owens, I was at, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, at a final four, I ran into Ted Owens, who was the coach at Kansas at the time. And, and I want to talk to him for the book. And we were talking and he told me how Wooden also told. So numerous people told me this. Um, now, what happened was the word was getting out around the final four and John Wooden couldn't keep the lid on it. So he he blurted it out and and told everybody the truth, which, of course, added the psychological edge to that Monday night game against Kentucky. But point being that for the rest of his life, John Wooden told something that was completely false. Now, maybe in his mind, he's conflating that, you know, he made the decision that he was going to go public right. with it as he right. walked off the court because he had been lying for months and he's uncomfortable yeah. with that. And now the word is getting out. Now he's got to go in and lie again. And he's like, all right, I'm done lying. But he conflated that to saying that he actually made the decision. Um, and the other part of the Wooden story I have to say is that I did delve into the Sam Gilbert stuff. Um, which was a huge piece of curiosity for me going uh -huh. in. And I felt like that story needed to be told again, toughly, but fairly and, uh -huh. and lovingly and gently um, because it was a tough spot for him to be in, but I felt like the truth needed to, to be told in full. Nice. Um, so I, I want to back up. You're born uh, in Connecticut and raised in Maryland. You spent a big part of your time in Pennsylvania Right. Ah, at summer, um, camp. summer camp, summer camp. That I'm yeah, I, I'm picturing wet, hot American summer. Ah, well, it, you're picturing correctly. Uh huh. And, and by the way, the people who made that movie went to my wife Melissa's camp, Camp Mode in, in Maine. And so when I'm watching that movie with her, she was pointing out all the little references and things hanging on the walls that were references to Camp Mode. My camp is uh, Camp Equinunk, um, which is where Jewish uh, families sent their kids because they didn't want their kids at home, but they were. Um, my best memories from camp. So, uh, so my my biggest question for you is why why sports, why basketball, and not politics? Uh, uh, poly poli sci uh, yeah. major. Your dad's in politics, uh, um, or in those circles, an attorney. Um, why 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 sports? Why basketball, Seth? Great great question. Um, well, I think it starts with why journalism. I think we have to start there. Mm -hmm. And you know, growing up, you know, obviously my dad was a big influence in this regard. Um, for those uh, who aren't familiar, my father is Lanny Davis. Um, he went to Yale and Yale Law School. Uh, he was classmates at Yale Law School with Hillary Rodham. Uh, Bill Clinton was a couple of years ahead. Um, his best friend in college was Joe Lieberman, who um, we, we don't technically have godfathers in the Jewish religion, I guess, but uh, I call him my godfather. He was my godfather. You know what a bris is, by the way, Rex? Have you ever been to a bris? Um, I haven't been, but uh, I like know it. what a bris is. You'd like it. You'd like yeah. it. The, sometime between the genital mutilation of the infant and all, <laughs> and all the food, uh, a bris is a, is, is a good time. So it's the father's job to hold the male child as he's being mutilated. And my father being the huge wuss that he is, was literally hiding in the bathroom when this was going on. And so he handed me to what's called a Sondek, which would be the equivalent of Godfather, which was Joe Lieberman actually 
uh, held wow. him. And I, wow. I, was, I was, you know, tease him, you know, when he was a senator, he was thought to be this real hawk on defense. <laughs> I always wondered where they, where he was when I needed him. When yeah, the, right. The oil was coming for me. So, <laughs> but, you know, Rex, I, I grew up in a house where, first of all, politicians were revered. Okay. People think of senators and congressmen right now. I don't think revered is, is the word that comes to mind, but I, I hope somebody ever thinks about you and talks about you the way my dad thinks and talked about John Kennedy. Um, that was his beacon. My dad was at the March on Washington and they all thought, and my dad actually ran for Congress a couple of times, didn't win, became an attorney, stayed very involved in, in politics. And then fast forward to um, the 1990s, his old friend Bill Clinton hired him into the White House and he worked there as a special counsel for a year and change sort of managing a lot of the stories through the press and it set him up now to be a crisis management attorney. So um, that was kind of his journey. But my dad, also a huge sports fan, uh, worshiped Willie Mays growing up and he grew up in uh, Jersey City and his dad took him to, you know, Ebbets Field and, and, and all those and still tells a story about Willie's final game before the Dodgers moved. Uh, excuse, me, excuse me, for the Giants. I'm going to get that wrong. <laughs> moved and my dad ran out onto the field uh, to try to chase Willie Mays and Willie Mays ran off the field and, and he got scared. He was a little kid and he thought he had lost his dad in this crowd. And he turns oh, around his dad standing right there. And he says to his, his dad, how'd you find me? And, and his dad said, I, I knew where you'd be. So, <laughs> so sports fathers and sons and families, it's a great, I experienced this with, with my kids where it's a constant, we were talking this morning about the wizards and trading Westbrook for all these players and, what are the Nationals going to do with Juan Soto? It's a constant bond. And so growing up, he took me to RFK Stadium in Washington, uh, the Washington Redskins. He took me to four Super Bowls. I was the biggest Redskins fan you could possibly know. And I was also a ham. You know, I was the lead in the, sh the, the shows at, at, at camp, at Camp Equinock. And I know that shocks you. Did you do um, drama and all that stuff growing well, a little up? Bit, little bit, a little bit. Mostly like in, in camp, everybody was in the plays and they made me the lead because I loved it. And um, but I like to write, I was on the, the newspaper and back in the day, of course, we got our sports news from the local newscast. That's something kids would have a hard time understanding in Washington. It was channel right. four, channel seven, channel nine. And I looked at, I don't know if you remember a guy named Glenn Brenner was the CBS sportscaster in, uh, in Washington. Um, and I looked at that, those guys. And I said, that's what I want to do. Right. I mean, he's on TV. Looks like he's having fun, probably making real good money. I was watching George Michael in the sports. George machine. Michael was channel four. And then Frank Herzog was channel seven. I changed it for the news. There you I go. Changed it for, I just watched the sports. Man. <laughs> just the sport. Well, just try the to explain to people, the local news came on at six, yep. six to seven. And at six 37, the sports guy would come on and do right. his. I don't know if you remember Warner Wolf, but he had, he had a spin in, in uh, Washington as well. So I just felt like that's what I wanted to do. But I always had the writing tie in. Our favorite movie growing up was All the President's Men, Woodward and Bernstein. So there was this romantic notion about writing and journalism. Wow. I went to Duke, even though Duke does not have journalism or communications as a, as a major or even a school. I took a couple of classes. Um, that's why I was a political science major because they didn't have journalism as a major. But they had a newspaper, TV station, a radio station for students. And so I and I was like the only guy who wanted to do those things. So I had my run of the place. And obviously they had a great basketball program. I was in the same. They class. were all right. Don't yeah, they were pretty good. They, they were, were all good. right. They were okay. They were just okay. In my four, in my uh, my four years as an undergraduate, Duke uh, went to four Final Fours. They played in three final games. 
I know you're, you're plugging your ears and they won it twice. So I've always thought that one day, Rex, I'm going to write a book about my undergraduate experiences at Duke. And the title is going to be, I hate Christian Leitner too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but so I, I naturally fell into college basketball, getting a base of knowledge and uh, two years at the New Haven Register covering high school sports, went over to Sports Illustrated, and then I was off and running. Well, that that's that. I'm glad you took us to right there because, I mean, you're you're a young man. You're sick. And as I'm sitting here looking at you, so good looking. In fact, you when they do the Rand Paul story. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going for, Rex. Thank you. The Rand Paul story. I'm more Mitt Romney. I'm a young Romney. Oh, you got the Duke tie in with him. Oh. Uh, I, you know, I just saw you in the good light right there for a second. There you, go. That's... you know, Nixon went to Duke Law School. So I, if I got to give me a minute on that. But you're you're a young man at, at 20. I mean, you've been you've been in sports now for what, 30, almost 30 years. And, but at a time where myself and the guys you were talking about, Grant Hill and Leitner and Hurley and those guys were, you know, you kind of you almost had to play sports <laughs> to, to be recognized like that. You've been around that long with people recognizing you. I don't even remember the first time I saw you. I just remember thinking much like you just said, where'd this guy come come from? You, you know, you just showed up and then you're, but you, you were always had a presence on TV. You were always and there. I know people don't really understand. There's a real gift to that. You know, you can't just get on there and monitor yourself and not get fired and then be presentable uh, to people. Were, were you ever just scared shitless? <laughs> I mean, really? The, the only time I was scared shitless was my first segment with CBS. And it was during the 2003 Final Four. This was when Syracuse beat Kansas in the final, remember Hakeem Warwick with yeah. the block. Yep. Um, and I had been able to finagle. They had a Sunday show called the final two show. It's just a, a studio show kind of in the bowels of the arena, hour long show. And so I finagled my way. I had been doing some TV and I got a, a segment because the big question was um, North Carolina had just fired Matt Doherty. Yep. And they hadn't hired a coach yet. And Roy Williams had turned it down the first time yeah. when they did hire Doherty. And now he's coaching Kansas in the championship game. Right. And, you know, what happens next? And so they brought me on to do a kind of coaching carousel spin. And I think I did say uh, that I thought that Roy was going to take the job and that Kansas was going to hire Bill Self. I don't know what else I got right, but I know I got that right. Um, and so, I, you know, this is actually a really neat story. So I was really nervous and I, I was not, I wasn't feeling well and I was, had been working real hard to get some scoops on, on to, to give to CBS. And I was very fortunate that they had a rehearsal. So we did a rehearsal and I totally bombed it. And Izzo was, was one of the guests uh, in the room too. And I think, I think everyone was, was kind of nervous, but I, I was glad to get the rehearsal on my belt. There was a security guard in the hallway. His name was Solace, right? A good old Louisiana. Yeah. Solace. He was great. Ah. I was just talking with him and we were bonding and we were, I was in, he was keeping me calm. And so I went in for the live part, um, knowing that this was not just a segment for CBS, that this was a de facto. I thought it was a de facto audition. I don't know if they felt that way, but I knew it was a big moment. And right before I turned to Salas and I said, um, got any last words of advice? And he said to me, just be you. Can't nobody be you better than you. 
And it was such a beautiful thing, you know, it was such a beautiful thing. So uh, I did the segment, I crushed it. It went great. And they were all shocked. And I remember I still mm. teasing Izzo about this. Izzo goes, way to bounce back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I get excited when I'm on TV. I don't get nervous because as you know from doing TV, you're so focused on like, where am I going? What am I talking about? What's coming up? What highlight? It's really like you're too focused on doing your job to think about um who, how many people are watching, but I will say to, to your point, I'm unbelievably lucky that CBS, cause I didn't necessarily pitch myself this way to CBS, that they saw something in me that I didn't see, which was to put me in a role that let's be honest, almost always goes to coaches or players mm-hmm. and that they did not um, feel confined by that box. And since then you've seen, I'm not saying I did this, but I think more. Yes, more you people, did. Well, I mean, like you see, like Tom Verducci, for example, was was my colleague at Sports Illustrated, and he had constantly turned down TV. And I was with him at a charity golf thing that that my buddy Jack McCallum always did. And we were having this conversation, and he's like, "Ah, oh, there's me to do TV. I don't know if I want to do it." And I said, "Are you nuts? <laughs> Look yeah. at you, you handsome devil. You should be on TV. Be great at it." And so, you know, sometimes people say, "Well, you know, well, you didn't coach and you didn't play. You know, why do you feel?" And my answer is. You know, if you want to hear from a former coach or former player, it's not like there's a shortage of those guys. Like, I love those guys. I listen to them. I'm friends with them. I bring my perspective, my skill set and my experience. And I'm unbelievably lucky that CBS has you know supported me in, in doing that and built an incredible life for me. I mean, I, I haven't worked a day in my life, Rex, and I'm not breaking the streak on this podcast today. Hey, man, I, I'm with you. Uh, and and. <laughs> Isn't it amazing though? And you guys have a, just an amazing team. You work with Greg Gumble and you work with uh, Clark Kellogg, who was one of my favorites. He had my favorite uh, free throw uh, routine of all time. Still. Really? Today. Yes. He, I don't know that he, I knew this. What was it? Seth, Seth, he used to take the ball and dribble it. And then he would take it underhanded, throw it up to himself, catch it and then shoot it. He did it every time. Ask him about it. All Ask these words. I love And I don't know if I don't know if they I, it was a big thing in college because, you know, I mean, technically it looks kind of like a shot and you can kind of uh I don't know if they let him do it while he was playing in the NBA. But uh yeah, yeah. But isn't it amazing what a it, it's like a family. And you talked about the pandemic and not getting to do all that stuff and wasn't it great? I mean, speak to that for a second, just getting back in the studio, right? For, for, you know, writing um, is a very lonely and singular endeavor. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you and your keyboard. And I love it. I love the grind. Um, you know, people often ask me which I like better. And my answer is TV's more fun. Writing's more gratifying. Um, but the difference is when you're on TV, you're really part of a team. And it's not just, as you well know, yeah. it's not just the guys on the set with you. You're, that's the tip of the iceberg between your producers, my, the research guys, you know, underdog yeah. down in Atlanta and, yeah. and guys like that. And that I came up as a researcher in SI, so I have a deep affinity and the camera folks are family, you know, CBS, they, most of this camera crew has been there since I've been there. That's like, that's almost 20 years now. They've seen my, my kids always hung, hung out. They've seen them grow up, grow up. Yeah. So, um, but I will say this uh, of the uh, countless things that I am so grateful for the fact that I have, Greg Gumbel 
and Clark Kellogg in my life for this many years, they are truly two of my best friends. I mean, I, I've spent more time with them than I have spent with a lot of my quote unquote best friends, just as the nature of, of the beast. And just two of the most amazing people you'd ever want to be around. Um, you know, Clark is a really special individual, as a special K, and and Greg is is just hilarious and supportive, and and, and it really, you know, I'd like to I'd like to think that it really comes through on the air that we really like it to tease each other. That's one thing I learned early on is you can't you can't flip on that chemistry when the light goes on. It's got to be there all the time. Got to be there. Production meetings in the car, back and forth in the hotel, dinner on the road, There's and the respect. Yeah, the respect because yeah. you know it's just like I, I liken it to sports because that's really my only reference. You know, I played bat poorly many nights. You see guys play poorly all the time. Not in my whole life, not in my whole life have I seen anyone go out there, suit up for a game or sport of any kind, and purposely try to look bad and or try to make a teammate look bad you know that and there's a there's a respect and a care that goes into those relationships you know because you want to you know might not always be your best day and uh you know you got to have a team a teammate step up and help you out with it with a train of thought or whatever else it is and let let me tell you a quick story about clark My, my first year on the set 2004 and he's obviously the the established guy and, you know, I, I started working during the season for CBS, not knowing where it was headed. I kept waiting for them to say, OK, great job last week. We're going to bring in someone else next week and you'll come back. I just didn't know. I don't think they knew either. Um, and then one day, Tony Petiti says to me, yeah, we're going to have you at the desk during the tournament. And I'm like, like this, like what desk? I thought I'd be on the road for Sports Illustrated. Next thing I know, I'm at the final four on the platform with Greg and Clark, just wondering how the hell this happened. But I'm the rookie. And again, I didn't play, didn't coach. So we get to the Monday night championship game and we're rehearsing our pregame segment, which is only like probably eight minutes, like two segments wrapped Mm -hmm. around a commercial. So there's only a couple of chances for us to actually say something. And it's the biggest audience of the year. Um, And so we are sort of rehearsing and formatting it. And the producer, Eric Mann, said to all of us, "I I got space for one more comment in here, but I don't have time for both of you to talk. Who wants it? And before I could say a word, Clark said, Seth can have. Now, again, Monday night. Yeah. Biggest audience. I'm the rookie. Didn't coach. Didn't play. He may have had no idea who I was before I sat next to him on the set. And my man says, Seth can have. And that's that's really all you need to know about Clark. And all you need to know about how freaking lucky I am to, to, to be where I am and, and do what I do. Team game. Great teammate. Team right game. There. Great teammate. Right? Yeah. Um, all right, so you didn't have Duke in your top ten this year, right? <laughs> I do now. Yeah, where do you yeah. have? Well, who, 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 well for, who's winning it all, Seth? Who's the who's the best who's the best team on the East Coast? If you had to do something right now, you can change your mind. I get okay. it. Okay, who's the best team on the East Coast, best team on the West Coast. Um, well, West Coast is easy. It's Gonzaga for me. Um, you know the fact that they were able to. Die, you're not convinced? The, the, no, the, I don't know. I, I UCLA, okay. I really like. Well, I like UCLA too, but the fact that Gonzaga was able to dominate Texas without, I think Chet Holmgren finished with two points, I want to say, maybe four points, certainly wasn't a factor. Um, Chet's going to have his, Chet's going to have his moments. 
So um, that was super Im Im impressive to me. You know, UCLA is, is, is certainly right there. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look, I'm going to call it my, my ballot for this week to cheat a little bit. Um, I, this doesn't count as, as the East, but right. a, a team I really like and a team I am openly rooting for is Purdue. Um, now, this is an interesting situation because, again, it is possible to have too much talent. It is possible to have too many guys. Ideally, your rotation is seven guys, maybe eight, if nobody gets hurt. Now, if guys get hurt, obviously you need more, and everyone's going to kind of go through that. So Purdue has a situation where they have this unbelievable seven-foot-four sophomore center, Zach Eady. Through the first two games, he's averaging 19.5 points, shooting 86% from the floor. But they also have a senior who entered the draft and came back, and Trevion Williams – who they can't play these guys together, Rex. So that's a little bit wow. of, of figuring things out. Jaden Ivey is, is super talented, but now their last year's point guard, Eric Hunter, is coming off the bench. So you know, guys can say, oh, we want to win. We, do you really want to win? Um, as great a coach as Gene Cady was, I'm not sure people realize it, never made the Final Four. Yeah. So not since 1980, um, Purdue hasn't made a Final Four. And those fans, God bless them, they have you know what I call little brother syndrome. Mm -hmm. where they see Indiana down the road getting the love and Michigan down the road. And Michigan's great again. Yep. But um, I think, I, first of all, I, I, I think the world of Matt Painter, building the culture that he's built and maintaining it, even when it, it maybe was I'm glad they've kept him. I, I really am. Yes. I, yeah. I know there was, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's had his, and yep. by the way, I'm old enough to remember when Jay Wright was on the hot seat, right? Oh, right. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and Jay had lost a couple early in the tournament. And I use him as an example of a coach who felt like he had the support of his AD and his chancellor and his president to work his way back the right way yeah. and do it in not cut corners, not try to bring in guys and make it all work on the fly. Cause you're afraid of getting fired. So yeah, painters had that. And for those fans to be rewarded with a final four, I really, I am openly rooting for Purdue to make the final four. Fantastic. A um, couple more. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Uh, you can reserve the right to change your mind, but you've <laughs> got to make the pick right now. You need a center. Who are you taking, Holmgren or Timmy? Are we talking about for college this year? Or no, the for the NBA. Oh, for NBA. your franchise. That, that's easy. That's easy. Chet Holmgren is uh, a true a true unicorn. Okay. Um, I wonder about the physicality. You know, he's never going to be a big, strong guy. Um, Back in the day, I would have agreed with that, but it's different now. You know, you – Remember how? Remember Sean Bradley? He exactly. I mean, they, people just you know it was a different time. You could right. be physical, and yeah. the fact that he can shoot and do all that he does, I think he's a no brainer as well. But yeah, I think you know. he'll probably be between him and Paulo. I think for the for the number one pick, that's that's a harder question for me. Um, I was watching, by the way, this guy Jabari Smith at Auburn. I don't know if he, yes, you know, I was watching. I knew he was great. And he mm -hmm. had a pretty good second game, and I watched him on Synergy. He is big time. I mean, he is six nine. Yeah. Made a couple threes. He's got a little that KD look mm -hmm. to him. Not not as polished as Paula, but might have a bigger upside than than Paula, based wow. on a very very small sample size. Wow. Um, all right. Uh, top five Dukies. You can only have five. You can't <laughs> have more. You can only have five. All time or all the time. Same thing as all time. <laughs> not now. Yeah. All time. Okay. Well, I think the big three from the championship years you got to put on, right? So Grant right. Hill, Bobby Hurley, Christian Leitner. 
Um, you know, it gets harder with the one and done guys because I think probably the best player I might argue that I've seen come through there is Zion Williamson with, with everything that he was able to do. Um, and then Jay Williams might be uh, my, uh, my fifth guy coming nice. out. I don't, think people, I don't think people truly remember how great, uh, not good, how great uh, he was as a, as, as a college player. So I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving people out. Don't tell no, you. You're boy, leaving plenty don't, of people. Don't out. tell your boy, Jay Dawkins out. You're leaving, you're leaving uh, JJ out. Uh, uh, you're, you're leaving Billis out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Billis is Billis was definitely the best screener they've ever had. So I would go with, uh, I would go with him for, for, for the best screener. So, and and clearly by far the best broadcaster the school has ever produced. Oh, he, he, he's, he's insanely good. Like so good. Maybe he checks all the boxes. Yes, he does. Yes, he and, does. And, and nobody works harder. You, you know, you got to see about Jay Billis. He's got the most insane handwriting. You've ever, when I was doing games for Big Ten Network, again, they let me do color. I asked him, will you send me your sheets so I could sort of learn how he prepares? He has the most perfect block text writing. You've Does ever he seen. really? That out, it just makes me. Ah, right. I know. He's too perfect. He's, he's too, too good. Perfect. He's uh, another, another, another pod where I get off the air feeling like shit about <laughs> myself. <laughs> Death, thanks, buddy. Um, I love you, Rex. Thanks. This yeah. is a trick. Do do since Josh isn't here. Do you want to do book club? Let's do book club. Um, what uh, what have you been up to last week? You have you read anything good? Well, I I have actually read a couple of books. I actually reread um, a season on the brink. Yeah, which was Feinstein, John Feinstein. Yeah. Um, my journalist, my one of the few journalism professors I had at Duke. I took his class a couple of times. Um, actually, better. I told him this is actually better than I remembered. Wow. Um, because it's much more about that season. His insights into Bob Knight um, are just... Uh, I don't know that I've ever read it. Yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. like it. Um, and um, yeah, and then I'm, 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 I'm in the middle of reading a novel right now uh, called The Book of Longings. It's a historical novel about a young Jewish girl in the time of Jesus, and she ends up marrying Jesus and watches him go through his progression. It's, I, I know it sounds probably surprising. Uh, Dana O'Neill, my colleague at the Athletic Room, it is unbelievably gripping and uh, fascinating. So fiction is my escape, so. Fantastic. Well, I didn't get around to anything this week and yeah. that's, been, that's been book club. Okay, well. All right. All right, I appreciate that. And then wait a minute, now you gotta ask me the two questions. Oh yeah, um, I'm ready. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I can listen to the, the, and then we have to do. Hold on a second now. All right, well, I've listened. To, I'm the only guest you've ever had who has listened literally to every single episode. Must be out of, of charges. Uh, I was listening to the Frank Caliendo episode um, during my workout this morning. It was unbelievable. Uh -huh. So yeah, I will. Right. Don't, don't even ask me the three questions I'm going to give you. First of all, this is episode okay. 28, which to me is Daryl Green. Fantastic. Washington Redskins cornerback, little guy, probably the fastest athlete I've ever seen. I was in RFK Stadium the night that he chased down Tony Dorsett from behind on Monday Night Football. That's how effing old I am. So wow. episode 28 is Daryl Green. Yep. My movie, as you know, what's going to be my answer to, to my favorite movie? Do you know what it is? I don't, but I'm going to go Hoosiers. <laughs> Pooch is a great guest. My okay. favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life because I'm a oh, big, yes. I'm a big dunce sap and I live tweeted every Christmas Eve. But I also want to throw out uh, Almost Famous, Hoop okay. Dreams, Hoop Dreams, my guys, uh, Arthur and, and yes. yeah. uh, uh Moonstruck. 
and uh, All the President's Men. So those are my movies. And then I have actually thought about when you asked the live show question. Yeah, who would you see, alive or dead? Alive or dead, who I want Front to row see? center. Front row center, how about peak? And I mean peak Elvis. To see Elvis in wow. person in a show, like I've, I, I know you love Prince, I've seen yeah. him, Michael Jackson, I've seen Springsteen a zillion times. Um, the, and maybe the other one that would come to mind is, is James Brown, by the way. But just yeah, young just Elvis or old Elvis, either? I would say peak Elvis. So I would say right, okay. I would say pre-Jump the Shark. Okay, which, all right. Yeah, yeah, I would say young Elvis, but established Elvis in a big setting, big yeah. arena, young. How about, you want to talk about an athlete now. How about an athlete, the way he really changed the game, not only with his music, but his performance ability. So Great. there you go. Agreed. Thank you, Seth. I would have forgotten all about it. I, I'm, 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 I'm down a wingman. You filled in perfect. I know. And my thoughts with Josh, and and and, and I, I'm honored to be on the, the Rex Chapman show. I finally made it big in, in this business. Thank you, Seth Lewis Davis. Come back and do it again. Love you. You got it. Thanks, buddy. Well, and that was Seth Davis. What a guy. Uh, episode 28 in the can, you guys. Uh, we're going to do another episode this week as well i won't let the cat out of the bag please subscribe rate and review and by the way you know i i appreciate seth being the biggest fan of the show and listening to all the pods and all of that if he really respected us he wouldn't have ruined book club by reading a book two i think <laughs> thanks seth See ya. Episode 29 coming up soon.